Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, embolden us to confront and name our demons that we might not demonize those who suffer. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Hear now the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. Jesus and his disciples sailed across Lake Galilee and came to shore near the town of Gerasa. As Jesus was getting out of the boat, he was met by a man from that town, and the man had demons in him. He had gone naked for a long time and no longer lived in a house, but in a graveyard. The man saw Jesus and screamed. He knelt down in front of him and shouted, Jesus, son of God in heaven, what do you want with me? I beg you not to torture me. He said this because Jesus had already told the evil spirit to go out of him. The man had often been attacked by the demon. And even though he had been bound with chains and leg irons and kept under guard, he smashed whatever bound him. Then the demon would force him out into lonely places. Jesus asked the man, what is your name? He answered, my name is Lots. He said this because there were lots of demons in him. They begged Jesus not to send them to the deep pit where they would be punished. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, so the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and Jesus let them go. Then the demons left the man and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men taking care of the pigs saw this, they ran to spread the news in the town and on the farms. The people went out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they also found the man. The demons had gone out of him, and he was sitting there at the feet of Jesus. He had clothes on and was in his right mind, but the people were terrified. Then all who had seen the man healed told about it. Everyone from around Gerasa begged Jesus to leave because they were so frightened. When Jesus got into the boat to start back, the man who had been healed begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him off and said, go back home and tell everyone how much God has done for you. The man then went all over town, telling everything that Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God for the people of God. So today is the first of two Sundays that we will spend together talking about mental health and addiction. And the reason that we're talking about this is because there is such a stigma around these two topics in our society that oftentimes we don't talk about it. And those who suffer from these conditions often do so in silence because they feel too ashamed or embarrassed to reach out for the help that they need. So today we're going to begin with this video. My journey through mental illness started when I was very young. My doctor told my mother that I was depressed. My mom's response was to move me to a different school and I didn't receive treatment. I continued to struggle and struggle and was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my 30s. I was struggling with my alcoholism and addiction as well. I was in a really dark place. 
One of the biggest barriers to finding support was the shame and the silence and the stigma that surrounded mental illness in general. I was very silent about what was going on with me, actually until I found NAMI. In the warm, supportive, understanding community that surrounds NAMI Austin, people get it. We know that mental illness is a disease, it's a brain disorder, and we know that the support of family and friends is vital to recovery. NAMI helped me start to talk openly about my bipolar disorder. Being a mentor for NAMI's peer-to-peer -peer class lets me spend time with others who are wanting to be happy and healthy in living with mental illness. It's possible to recover. I tell people how much work it takes to stay in recovery, but you know what? It's a battle I'm willing to fight because I've been given a beautiful life and I choose to fight for keeping it. Without having discovered NAMI Austin, I think I would still be living with more shame. Being around people who are living in recovery with their mental illness and who are giving back to the community by breaking down the stigma that surrounds mental illness has been such a boost to my own ability to live with acceptance. People can see me as someone who has a full, happy, healthy life and then happens to have bipolar disorder. I am the face of recovery. Valerie was in a dark place at one point in her life because of the silence that she endured surrounding the illness that she suffered from. She was in a position of deep vulnerability. The man with demons had gone naked for a long time. And he lived in a graveyard, repeatedly. He had broken free of chains and leg irons that someone or someones had bound him in. Scripture doesn't specify why. I imagine it was to keep him safe, maybe, to make him behave, perhaps. I don't really know, but he is so tormented by these demons, these demons that will not let him go, these demons that work him into such a frenzied state of anxiety that he somehow finds the strength to break free of the chains that bind him, these chains that attempt to bind him to his com community, only to be driven out again, naked, into the lonely places. This image of terrified and desperate vulnerability breaks my heart. This image of a human being driven by demons into such a heightened state of anxiety that they would strip naked and completely exposed, find their only comfort, their only peace, dwelling among the dead. This image of a person compelled over and over and over again out into lonely places. It's appalling. Valerie Milburn's doctor diagnosed her as a young girl with depression. Now there's one demon right there. Its name is depression, and it is not uncommon. How many of us just in this room have fought that demon at some point in our lives? 
I mean, whether it's clinical depression that is linked to genetic factors or situational depression that was triggered by a major loss or a traumatic life event, depression exiles us to lonely places because it's not okay to talk about it. Those who suffer with depression, they often bear the added burden of shame that is associated with the stigma that surrounds mental illness in our society. We've talked about this before, but do you remember what the difference between guilt and shame is? Guilt makes you feel bad because you've done something bad or you've done something wrong. And if you're in a healthy place, you apologize, you make amends, you try to do something to correct the wrong that you've done. But shame, on the other hand, it paralyzes us because while we may or may not have done something wrong or bad, there's something deep within us that insists that we are bad or we are somehow just wrong. There's something terribly wrong about us and we feel powerless to change it. When shame washes over us, it drives us out into lonely places like a wounded animal. And while we may not literally strip naked, we may as well be because we feel so exposed, completely vulnerable, convinced that everyone else can see it, that everyone else knows we're bad. So we hide. And in the case of some people, perhaps like Valerie, we self-medicate, drink alcohol, take drugs. And those are the only, the most obvious addictions, the ones that it's hard to miss. But there are many things that we resort to because it's the only way that we know how to not feel so bad anymore, at least for a moment, for a period of time. And there was no way for Valerie to know what was happening to her. When her parents found out that she was depressed, doing the best they could with the tools they had at their disposal in that moment in time, they chose to move her to a different school. Unintentionally, probably, signaling to her that this condition she was suffering from was too shameful to talk about. That it was something that was best kept secret. They didn't know any better because no one was talking about it around them either. So driven out into lonely places by the demons that had hijacked her life, by the time she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in her 30s, she had already resor resorted to drinking alcohol and doing drugs. And her story is not uncommon. Though she was driven by demons, Cloaked in secrecy, demons surrounded by such stigma that we can't even call them by name, driven out into lonely places, she was not alone. But how could she know? No one was talking about it. Luckily, now NAMI talks about it. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is a grassroots organization dedicated to building better lives for the millions, millions of people who suffer from mental health conditions. Karen Renu is the director of the Austin area chapter of NAMI, and I got to meet her a couple of years ago when she came to present to a group that I was a part of 
It was a fellowship of pastors, of pastoral leadership for public life. And she empowered us with some stunning facts, some of which she gave me permission to share with you all today. I know now what Valerie couldn't have realized as a young girl. She was absolutely not alone. There are so many myths that surround mental illness. And one of the major ones, a primary myth, is that it's rare. But in our country, mental health conditions affect one in five people. And that's irrespective of age. Another common myth is that mental health conditions don't affect children. And children are as affected by mental health conditions as adults are. 50% of lifetime mental health disorders present themselves by the age of 14. And 70% of youth who are in the juvenile justice system, they have a diagnosable mental health disorder. These are just two of the many myths that surround mental illness. Myths that thrive because we don't talk about it, because we don't consider it polite or appropriate conversation. But actually, mental illness is scary. None of us wants to think that it could touch us, that it could touch those that we love. So maybe we disregard or dismiss the symptoms or the signs. Maybe we ignore it. Which is easy to do if you buy into another common myth of mental illness which is that those who suffer with mental illness do so because of some character flaw that they have. It's not true. There are many things that contribute to mental illness. Many of them are biological factors, might be related to another illness that you've had or to an injury or maybe it's genetic. Also, traumatic life experiences can trigger mental health conditions. When my dad suffered with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and end-stage emphysema, which, of course, meant that he couldn't breathe very well, he began to experience anxiety because when you can't breathe, you get to feeling a little bit anxious. And then, as you feel more anxious, it becomes even harder to breathe. And so you start this cycle that just perpetuates itself and perpetuates the problem. Luckily, my dad's doctors, they were able to name that particular demon and treated him with the appropriate anti-anxiety medication, which lowered his anxiety and helped him to breathe better. That may seem like a minor example, but still, until my dad had the courage to tell his doctors that he was experiencing anxiety, something that he was a little embarrassed about, he wasn't able to receive the treatment that was so readily available and so effective. Which leads me to another myth which surrounds mental illness, which is that mental illness can't be treated effectively. It's not true. Compared to the success rate of other common and more respectable, treatable diseases, things like the surgical treatment that many people receive to correct heart disease, for example, in comparison to that, the rate of success when treating mental illness is 20% greater and we talk about heart disease, we talk about cancer, we talk about kidney stones and pneumonia, we even talk about irritable bowel syndrome. 
But illness related to mental health? Nope. Which puts those who suffer from the disease at a great risk. Because another common myth is that mental illness is not deadly. That's absolutely false. In 2014, almost 43,000 people in this country died from suicide. And it's estimated that 90% of suicides are related to some form of mental health condition. Almost 43,000. Y'all, that's the same as those who die from breast cancer. That's more than those who die from prostate cancer, and it's three times the number of homicides. All of these are socially accepted topics of conversation, and all of them are socially supported in terms of finding resources to address what are considered considerable crises. And many of these same myths also surround addiction, which also affects a stunning number of people. 21 and a half million Americans over the age of 12 suffer from addiction. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of one in 12. And about a third of those are also affected by mental illness. Now I wanna offer a disclaimer here, this is very important. So hear this, not everyone who is an alcoholic or a drug addict also has a mental illness. And not everyone who suffers with a mental illness will become an alcoholic or an addict. And those with mental illness do have a higher likelihood of becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol. Especially when, as in Valerie Milburn's case, the demons aren't properly named, or the social stigma surrounding the names are so negative that a person either refuses or, in Valerie's case, is refused conventional medical treatment. And so they begin to self-medicate. With any number of substances or behaviors, just so they can feel better, just so they can inhabit their own skin, so that they can feel connected to the world around them, connected to people, so that they can feel like they belong. And this is why NAMI was presenting to my cohort of pastoral leadership for public life. Because NAMI is calling on faith communities, NAMI is calling on us to shed light on an issue that remains largely in the dark. And that's what we do, right? Us Jesus people, that's what we're called to do. We're called to bring those things that diminish or destroy life into the light that they might be seen clearly, that they might be understood more fully so that we can address them with compassion. Right now, we don't do a very good job of it. We don't do a very good job at all of naming these particular demons because we don't talk about it. On average, 66% of congregations talk about mental illness once a year. That's just a little over half. And it just goes down from there. So instead of naming these demons, those who suffer with these illnesses that we can't name, they 
end up being demonized. I mean, we lock some of them up. We abandon others to live in graveyards or under bridges. Even those who worship among us, who suffer silently, those sitting in the pews beside us who are struggling to function, even they live in very lonely places because of the social stigma that surrounds their illness. Y'all, these statistics, I think, explain a lot. And they normalize the conversation a lot. To my great personal relief, I grew up surrounded by alcoholics. Alcoholics who, in hindsight, come to find out, had suffered also from mental illness. My mom divorced my dad because he was a raging alcoholic. Sometimes he was violent, definitely dangerous. And then as a single mom, she couldn't afford childcare, so I spent the majority of my time while she was working with her mom and her dad, who was also an alcoholic. I watched him come home from work every single day and get completely plastered. I mean, falling down drunk. He had pints of Kentucky Gentlemen hidden under every every single seat cushion on every couch and chair in the house. I would find Kentucky Gentlemen at the bottom of the laundry hamper. It was under his bed. And we would sit there at the dining room table in the evening and pretend like we didn't notice when he passed out face first in his mashed potatoes. Because you didn't talk about those demons. In fact, you pretended they didn't exist at all because they were just too shameful. Y'all, I cannot tell you what a relief it was to me the first time I realized that I was not the only person that experienced that. Because somebody had the courage to share with me the name of the demons that plagued them. We all have them, demons. Some are easier to name than others. In my experience, mental illness and or addiction affects everybody. I don't know a single person who I've gotten to know in any level of intimacy who has not experienced personally or has someone very close to them who has experienced mental health and or addiction. Mental illness and addiction are painful, they're destructive, and they're progressive diseases that are killing as many or more people in our country, as many of the illnesses that we find much easier to name, much easier to talk about, respectable diseases that we get absolutely outraged about when cures are not being fiercely fought for or funded. Jesus crossed the Lake of Galilee. He went over to the other side. This is the only time in Luke's gospel when Jesus intentionally seeks out Gentiles. Those are people who aren't Jewish. And it's for the express purpose, purely for the sake of naming this man's demons, exposing them, 
so that they can finally be fully driven out of him so that he can be restored to his right mind so that he can be restored to his community, the people he belongs to so that he can be restored to a sense of being one among all these people who gather together. Valerie Milburn's demons drove her to alcoholism and addiction, drinking and drugging just so that she could feel better, less depressed, less isolated, so that she felt like she belonged. As a compassionate faith community, we have got to have the courage to name whatever demons threaten the well-being and the fullness of life that we are all promised in Jesus Christ. We have to talk about it. It's imperative because our polite silence is deadly. And Christ's witness compels us to name the demons that possess us rather than to demonize those who suffer from those demons so that they might be driven out and those who are tormented can reclaim their right mind so that they can reclaim the community to which they belong and most importantly, so they can reclaim their own name. Beloved child of God, amen.